um, with a little interview with Jake. I thought of um, a, an anecdote. When I first met Lee, which was 14 years ago in Cambridge, when he gave me his business card, modestly entitling himself thereupon, The Theologian. <laughs> is or is that not true? That's absolutely true. So that means that in 2,000 years of church history, that epithet has been applied only to John the Evangelist, the fourth, author of the fourth gospel, to Gregory of Nazianzus, to St. Simeon of St. Mamus, otherwise known as Simeon the New Theologian, and to Lee Gatiss. So... <laughs> He's also a man whose life's ambition, I think, is to be well-known enough that no one reads and pronounces his surname as Gattis. Yes. A man whose contacts list on both sides of the Atlantic has been the subject of bidding wars by Christian publishers. A man who is everything good about the Anglican realignment movement or everything wrong about leadership in the Church of England, depending on which day of the week you visit Anglican Inc. <laughs> He read John Owen before it was cool. He's not young, he's not restless, but he is painfully reformed. <laughs> Let me hand you over to Lee Gatiss. But after I've prayed, I've got the most important thing. <laughs> got, I, got carried, I got carried away with Master taking Lee down. <laughs> okay. Uh, Titus 1.9 says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, anoint Lee to proclaim the trustworthy message of your Son, that he might encourage us with sound doctrine, and equip us to refute those who oppose it. Amen. Amen. <laughs> well, follow that. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. <laughs> I think. Ah, right. We're going through difficult days in our church right now, um, and in our country you may have noticed by reading the news. Many commentators lament the lack of good leadership at the highest levels of government, the democratic deficit, and the horrendous paralysis of parliament as we approach some of the most momentous months and years for our United Kingdom. The Western nations are led by some who prefer to do international diplomacy via Twitter, and others who pursue progressive virtue signalling rather than social stability and care for the poor, which should be their proper concerns. Is the church in any better position? The independent inquiry into child sex abuse has excoriated our bishops, our processes and our institutional cover-ups. Senior evangelicals have been at the forefront of apostasy, abuses of power, and appalling behaviour. There is little credibility left in the mantra of mutual flourishing, which is undermined at every level by broken promises and empty assurances. Now, some money and time has been put into reform and renewal programmes, but we continue to shrink and to shirk our responsibilities to speak clearly to the nation about Jesus' gospel of repentance and forgiveness and the new life of obedience to the Spirit which he shows us in his word. Rather, we're busy baptising, literally, the deep confusions of our society about sexuality and gender. And few hear the message of the cross, warnings of hell or the call of heaven. During the Reformation, a committee overseen by Archbishop Thomas Cranmer produced, as I mentioned earlier, a reformed canon law for the newly reformed Church of England. The church is in a mess it declares, what do we need to do to sort it all out? Well, here's what they said. Just as the condition of the state is ruined when it is governed by people who are stupid, demanding, and burning with ambition, 
So in these times, this is the Reformation, just to remind you. <laughs> so in these times, the church of God is struggling since it is committed to the care of those who are totally incompetent to assume so important a task, in which respect it has fallen very far short indeed of those rules of the blessed Paul, which he prescribed to Timothy and Titus. Therefore, we must find an appropriate remedy for so serious a plague on our churches. More specifically, they continue, in a presbyter there shall shine those qualities described by the Lord Paul in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. They shall regularly feed the flock of God committed to them with the word of life, and they shall constantly nurture all Christians in a sincere obedience both to God and to the magistrates and to those placed in a higher dignity and earnestly encourage them to love one another. They shall not be drunkards, gamblers, fowlers, hunters, hypocrites, sluggards, or weaklings, but they shall devote themselves to the study of sacred letters, to the preaching of the word, and to the prayers to the Lord for the church. What a great vision. So at a time when the people are languishing for lack of good leadership in the state and torn apart by plots and divisions, the church must lead the way by recovering a vision of godly government and guidance. This was at the heart of the Reformation under Edward VI in the 16th century. And I would contend it must be at the heart of any efforts we hope to make today for the reform and the renewal of our church. So let's examine the appropriate remedy for so serious a plague in Paul's instructions to Titus. This is a God-breathed prescription to save the church from those who are stupid, demanding, and burning with ambition and to show the world a better way. So if you'd like to turn to Titus chapter 1, and Julie is going to come and read that for us. Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his, this, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour, to Titus, my true son, in our common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer managing, manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable and one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting the whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. 
But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much. Okay, please keep that open. That's what we're looking at tonight. Titus 1 tells us what the church lacks, who the church needs, and why the church needs them. There you go, there's a three-point sermon for you if you ever needed one. What the church lacks, what the church needs, or who the church needs, and why the church needs them. But I'm not going to give you that sermon. Let me just approach this, this in a slightly different way. Let's look at the last part of this, the chapter first, and we'll see what is the context for Paul's letter. So let's look at verse 10 onwards to start with, and try to discern what is going on in Crete, which is where this is. The situation Paul is writing into is that the church is unsettled, unhealthy, and unfit. The church is unsettled, unhealthy, and unfit. So Paul tells Titus that the church needs godly leaders in verse 5. You see that? But from verse 10 onwards, he tells us why this is so important. For, he says, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. There are rebellious and unruly people on the island, spreading false teaching and idle babble in the church. There's a lot of Pointless twittering, in other words, which is causing deep and profound trouble for Christian families. People who say one thing but mean another, or who clothe their false teaching in orthodox terminology so that the uninformed might be fooled. These people must be silenced, says Paul, because they are upsetting whole families. The word for upsetting there, it doesn't just mean making a few people sad and unhappy, you know, sad face emoji. That's not what it means. It's the same word that John uses in his gospel when he describes what Jesus did to the money changers' tables. He upset them. He upended them. He overturned them. That's what these insubordinate deceivers are doing to Christian families by their teaching. They're teaching what they ought not to teach, Paul says, and doing it for the sake of shameful gain, to line their pockets with filthy lucre, as the King James Version translates this. But shameful gain could mean more than merely financial benefit, It's any kind of advantage or victory, but one here that is a shameful victory. False teachers are making political and ecclesiastical progress in a way that they really shouldn't be proud of at the expense of the stability of Christian families. These people are liars, beasts and gluttons, having given themselves over to sensuous pleasures rather than spiritual health, just like the rest of Cretan culture around them, it seems. Uh, Paul illustrates with this song lyric from uh, Cretan Top of the Pops. Um, Titus is told, therefore, to rebuke these people sharply so they may be sound in the faith. Healthy, it means. Healthy in the faith. Because these people are not healthy, Their minds and their consciences are defiled, he says. Some of the language of purity and uh, Jewish myths that Paul uses here no doubt comes from the specific kind of false teaching being spread by the circumcision party. Don't be fooled. It's not just a dash of legalism, though. These people, he says, have devoted themselves to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And with that revolution in their thinking has come all kinds of nasty consequences. So the church is unsettled, 
and unhealthy. And in the final verse of the chapter, he says that these people are detestable, disobedient and unfit for any good work. This is in stark contrast to the faith that Jesus taught. Paul, it says at the top of the chapter, is a servant of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. But these people, they turned away from the truth. The gospel Paul teaches is a truth that leads to godliness, you notice. The errors of these detestable and disobedient people make them unfit for any good work. They think they're free, but they're insubordinate. Disobedient approach to the faith shows what they really are. Their truth does not lead to godliness. It leads to the very opposite. So to expand the quote from Epimenides, liars always men of Crete, nasty brutes who live to eat, overturning healthy rule, replacing gospel food with gruel. That's the sad situation in Crete. The details of the heresies upsetting the faith of some in ancient Crete are no doubt different to the specific errors floating around in the Church of England today, but it doesn't take too much of an imaginative leap to see what is making our church unsettled, unhealthy and unfit for purpose, does it? So what is the appropriate remedy for so serious a plague? Paul's answer is in verses 5 to 9. He says, when the church is like this, when it's unsettled, unfit and unhealthy, the church needs leaders. The church needs leaders. Now, we're not exactly sure when Paul visited Crete, but he realised at some point that the job was unfinished. Something important still needed to be done. It was an incomplete task. So he left his co-worker, Titus, there, specifically, as verse 5 tells us, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So you see, there were Christian people there already. In Titus 2, Paul calls them Jesus' very own people. In Titus 3, he calls them our people. These believers needed proper organisation and leadership. Now, this letter is written to Titus himself, but it's written to authorise him for the task at hand. Just as 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy were written not just to Timothy himself, but to prove that he was ministering in the way that Paul had told him to, to prove to those he's actually ministering to that he has apostolic authority for the actions that he's taking. Paul is very interested in establishing good leadership in churches. So contrary to what some people have alleged recently, Paul doesn't only ever write to congregations like the Ephesians or the Galatians. His letter to the Philippians, for example, is written to the saints at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. To the church and to the overseers and deacons. He is very much concerned with good order in the churches that he pioneered. Indeed, from his first missionary journey onwards, the Apostle Paul set the pattern of appointing elders in the places where he planted churches though not always straight away. So, you know, he, uh, he goes to Antioch, to Iconium, and to Lystra in uh, Acts chapter 13 and 14, making disciples. And then at the end of chapter 14, he goes back through Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, appointing elders in each church. So first comes making disciples through preaching the word, Together, those disciples form a church, and then elders are appointed in each church. That's Paul's apostolic pattern. 
as, uh, as Thomas uh, Richard Hooker says, um, the, the church, the church is a society. And it exists regardless of whether it gathers together or not. Here's what Hooker says, Richard Hooker. He says, well, you know, you can get these hookers mixed up, so it's, it's good to be clear. The church is always a visible society of men, not an assembly, but a society. For although the name of church be given to Christian assemblies, although any multitude of Christian men congregated may be termed by the name of a church, yet assemblies properly are, things, are rather things that belong to a church. Men assembled for performance of public actions, which actions being ended, the assembly dissolves itself and is no longer in being. Whereas the church, which was assembled, does no less continue afterwards than before. Let me just translate that into 21st century English. So when we gather in twos and threes or hundreds, it's the church that is gathering, that assembles. It isn't the assembly that brings the church into being. No, the church already exists. We, it is the church that gathers. Moreover, the church exists even if it doesn't have that council of elders that's been appointed, despite what Cyprian and some in the early church um, and others say about the church being in the bishop. No. As the Anglican theologian Richard Hooker also says, the apostles formed churches in all the places where the word of God was received and all churches by them erected received from them the same faith, the same sacraments, the same form of public regiment, that is organisation or polity. The form of regiment by them established at first was that the laity or people should be subject to a college of ecclesiastical persons which were in every city appointed for that purpose. These, in their writings, they sometimes term presbyters, sometimes bishops. So, you see, Titus is to appoint elders in every town. Not elders over every house church, notice, but a council of elders for each town. Some of these would be overseers of domestic house churches with specific duties of leading and teaching in extended families. But not every elder would be a teacher overseer. 1 Timothy 5.17, for example, draws a distinction between teachers and uh, elder overseer. And not every house church leader would necessarily be on the council of elders. Otherwise, Titus wouldn't need to discern who to appoint. The terms elder and overseer were not exactly synonymous then, but they might overlap a bit in some contexts. There's a slightly awkward merging in the first century as the church grows of the household pattern of overseer and deacon um, with a synagogue or community pattern of a council of elders. If you want to look into all this kind of eldership stuff a little bit more, here's three books which I would uh, recommend to you. Uh, Andrew Clark's book on a theo uh, the Pauline theology of church leadership is very good. Uh, Elders in Every City by Roger Beckwith is excellent. Um, and also uh, you can read Richard Hooker in a modern English translation um, put out by the Davenant Trust just uh, recently of the first half of uh, Hooker's ecclesiastical polity. It's not the easiest... English, as you can see, I've read out the, the original um, there. This, this edition of Hooker simplifies things a little bit. There is room for someone to simplify it even further so that uh, most of us can understand it. But I would recommend you, you have a look at those books if you're interested in this idea of eldership, leadership, and some of the Anglican polity issues that are going around. So anyway, back to Titus. The Apostle Paul directs his delegate... Archbishop Titus, you might say, to appoint elder overseers, presbyter bishops, to lead the house churches in each town on Crete, because that is what the church lacks and badly needs in its unsettled and unhealthy state. 
From other places, such as 1 Timothy, we learn that the elder overseers may also have deacons working alongside them as well. Until this appointing of leaders is done, there is a key ingredient missing, something lacking in the church for its well-being and continuance. The church exists already without this, but it is better off with overseers and elders. To use the words of Cranmer's canon law, without this competent, qualified leadership, the church of God is struggling. Without competent, qualified leadership, the church of God is struggling. So apostolic order requires a council of Christian elders in a town, some of whom may be overseers with specific, specific duties, with men such as Timothy and Titus having a sort of archiepiscopal role over a wider field and supervisory powers over pay, discipline and ordination, as we see in 1 Timothy 4, 5 and 6. Timothy is to have an interest in all those areas of pay, discipline, ordination over the other elders. Some of this was fairly fluid in the early days, of course, as the church was just getting going in those early generations. But as our beloved prayer book summarises this for us, it is evident unto all men diligently reading Holy Scripture and ancient authors that from the apostles' time there have been these orders of ministers in Christ's church, bishops, priests and deacons, overseers, presbyters or elders and deacons. Which offices were evermore had in such reverend estimation that no man might presume to execute any of them except he were first called, tried, examined and known to have such qualities as are requisite for the same. And also by public prayer with imposition of hands were approved and admitted thereunto by lawful authority. Now a great summary really of Timothy and Titus. What these requisite qualities are for such people is precisely what Paul addresses next. Because as Cranmer said, we don't want elders and overseers who are incompetent. So when the church is unhealthy, unsettled and unfit, the church needs leaders. But most of all, says Paul, the church needs godly leaders. The church needs godly leaders. And that's my third point. Verses 6 to 9 tell us the kind of people who should be appointed to leadership in the church. Not the kind of people who are stupid, demanding and burning with ambition. They're making enough of a mess in the state, aren't they? No, what we need in the church is godly leaders. Only appoint elders in a town, says Paul, if you can find people like this. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. What we're looking for is someone of unquestioned integrity and consistency, someone of irreproachable character. Not perfect. Doesn't say you have to be perfect, because that's impossible. Of course, we don't believe in the doctrine of perfectionism. But if there's somebody whose motives and actions and words are constantly suspect or inconsistent, that person is not to be appointed to any level of church leadership. You don't know what their real agenda is but it probably won't be God's agenda. Then it says an elder must be literally a one-woman man. That doesn't rule out singles, of course. Not at all. By no means. It just means that if a church leader is married, they must be faithfully married, not a philanderer. Certainly not polygamous, as if that needed saying. 
it all needs saying nowadays, doesn't it? Mm. And they must have faithful children. Now, I don't think that Paul means by faithful here um, that the children must all be soundly converted believers or else. You know, they're all going to be soundly converted believers or else you're not able to go into ministry. But he is saying, as he says elsewhere, that if someone cannot run their own household very well, then they should not be put in charge of God's household, the church. So if you have consistently insubordinate children and you cannot handle them, then how can you be entrusted with handling insubordinate and disobedient people in the church? So this is what, this is what people ought to be like if they are going to be appointed, if Titus is going to appoint them, if we're going to appoint them today, to the council of elders in a town. This is then unpacked for us in three ways. He tells us what a good minister should not be, what they should be, and what they should do. What a good minister should not be, what they should be, and what they should do. Do you notice it turns to singular at this point? Did you notice the slight change in his grammar? Elders, a point elders in each town, becomes for an overseer, singular, Uh, Some people have seen in that uh, regular use of the plural for presbyters or elders and the singular for overseer or bishop, the start of the idea that one bishop will end up presiding or chairing the local college of presbyters. That is generally what happened as time went on. Whether it's exactly what Paul intended or what God demands, I'll leave for a discussion after hours. The important thing is what should an overseer be like? Look at the list of negatives in verse 7. They must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain. So we don't want someone who is overbearing, arrogantly thinking of themselves as superior to others, and making everyone appreciate their greatness. No, we don't want people like that. Again, we've got too many of those in the state already. We don't need them in the church. Those people will be too busy pointing out to others how wonderful they are that they won't have time to point people to Jesus. These people should not be quick-tempered. Now, God is slow to anger, and as stewards of a patient God, it is important not to fly off the handle whenever someone makes a silly comment after your sermon or when something goes wrong. Drunkards also need not apply for the role of overseer. You cannot reach for the whiskey or run for the pub every night to drown your sorrows at the end of a hard day looking after God's people and trying to deal with those detestable heretics. You don't deserve another bottle just because you're one of the sound crowd. Alcohol abuse leads to other kinds of abuse. Ephesians 5 verse 18. However good the vintage, however singular the malt. An overseer must not be violent. It's as if Paul's saying, look Titus, I know how tempting it is to fight fire with fire. These evil beasts and lazy gluttons on Crete, they're a rum lot, aren't they? And they can be quite pushy and unruly. But I don't want you to counter that by appointing pugnacious and demanding bullies as overseers of the church. That kind of coercion and control will not further the faith of God's elect. Jesus gave his blood for the church. So no one should be shedding the church's blood with harsh treatment. However however good they may be at preaching on a Sunday or writing blogs against the circumcision party. An overseer should not be greedy for gain. Because that's what false teachers are in it for, isn't it? Shameful gain. And while a worker is worth his wages and double honour, in some cases, as far as Paul's concerned, ministry in God's church is not a money-making profession. 
It's a sacrificial calling. With treasure in heaven for good and faithful servants who seek first the kingdom of God and the hope of eternal life. It's about serving the Christ who himself served us by giving up the riches of heaven, giving them up to die in poverty for our sake. So what a contrast we have here between the true overseer and the disobedient heretic. But look also at the consistency of life that is demanded. Literally, look at it. Look secondly at the list of positives in verse 8, for example. The overseer, it says, must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. That is, Titus, you want someone who has good relationships with people. They like people, not just ideas. They visit and have people around rather than hiding away in their study. They have emotional intelligence and relational skills because soft skills are very useful in hard places in a way that introverted book learning is not. The kind of person we're looking for loves other people and loves what is good. That's what he says. Because in the last days, there will be people who are brutal and don't love good. Paul said that in 2 Timothy 3. Remember, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth, 1 Corinthians. And we want our ministers to be drawn in their hearts to whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. Whatever unforeseen things come their way, a person with a character like this will not go far wrong. Now they must be also self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, a measured temperament, in a law-abiding citizen, will stand out a mile in a place like Crete, won't it? Holiness and self-control will be distinctive in a society or a church that is full of lazy liars on the lookout for filthy lucre. Church leaders must be mature Christian believers with mature Christian characters living consistent, publicly unimpeachable lives. If they're not, you're asking for trouble. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but sooner or later, the shipwreck will come. So this is what an overseer must not be, and what an overseer must be if the church is to weather the inevitable storms that will come our way. But finally, Paul told us at the start of this letter that God, who never lies. What a beautiful phrase that is, isn't it? God, who never lies, promised eternal life to us through the preaching of his word. So an overseer must hold firmly to that trustworthy word, which was entrusted to Paul and taught and passed on down to us through the ages. They must be godly and have a firm grip on the unchanging gospel. They don't just need a message to give to people. They need the message. Now, I know that anybody who is at all intellectually engaged with their faith is bound to have questions. Questions and uncertainties of some sort. Anybody, if you're at all intellectually engaged, you will have those things somewhere in your mind. There are things about the faith and about the Bible and about creation that we may not fully understand. You may not have memorised Calvin's institutes and crossed every T and dotted every I. There are plenty of things I'm still chewing over in my mind about theology and philosophy and so on. But to be an overseer in God's church, we must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught. 
as taught. We must trust God's unerring word to lead us and defer to it in every case of doubt or darkness. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Proverbs 30. There are two reasons, I think, why the overseer has to hold firmly to the trustworthy word. So they can give sound instruction and so that they can detect and expose counterfeits. If you don't hold firmly to such an anchor yourself, well, we'll never give sound instruction to those who rely on us for spiritually healthy food. A spiritually unhealthy, obese church full of evil beasts and lazy gluttons needs a decent diet. And we can't cook it up for ourselves. We need the trustworthy word as it has been taught. If we're not confident in that God-given recipe, then we'll so easily be tempted to reach for the sugar that people like so much add too much salt, spice things up a bit, pepper our sermons to make them seemingly more palatable. An overseer must hold firmly to the Father's recipe in order to serve people healthy doctrine to make them fit again. But also note, finally, we must hold firmly to the trustworthy word so that we can rebuke those who contradict it. Verse 9. Because those unsettling heresies troubling the church need to be silenced, says Paul. They must be rebuked and brought back to the truth they've turned away from. We must feed the sheep and defend them from wolves. The church has always known that this is an essential part of gospel ministry. We cannot simply affirm everything. There must be denials as well. It is no good saying that Jesus is begotten of the Father if we don't also add he is begotten, not made. I was expecting you all to join in with me there because that's the Nicene Creed. He is begotten, not made. You have to say both. Otherwise you haven't closed off every avenue for the heretics. We must close the loopholes like that, which the insatiable moths of sin and error try to open up in the glorious tapestry of God's truth. Wherever they are nibbling away at the fabric, there we must be careful to deny them access. In the 17th century, the, uh, the Westminster Assembly of Divines got together and uh, drew up their famous catechisms and uh, confession, the Westminster Confession. They also produced what's known as the Westminster Directory of Public Worship, giving directions on how to lead various church services. It's a very small book. It's not like common worship. It's, um, it's just a very small uh, sort of book. And their advice on preaching is well worth noting. I recommend you have a look at that sometimes. But they also add this in that section on preaching, on refuting those who oppose the truth. They say, in confutation of false doctrines, the preacher is neither to raise an old heresy from the grave, nor to mention a blasphemous opinion unnecessarily. But if the people be in danger of an error, he is to confute it soundly, and endeavour to satisfy their judgments and consciences against all directions. In dissuading, reprimanding and publicly warning people, which requires special wisdom, let the preacher, as there shall be cause, not only expose the nature and greatness of the sin, with the misery attending it, but also show the danger his hearers are in, to be overtaken and surprised by it, together with the remedies and the best ways to avoid it. So we're not to be like Thomas Aquinas. You know the old story of Thomas Aquinas? Uh, one day in 1269, uh, Thomas Aquinas was having dinner with King Louis IX of France. But he wasn't really paying much attention to his royal companion. He was, it is said, wrapped out of himself 
and spent most of the meal pondering the Manichees, a religious sect from the third century. All of a sudden, he banged the table and he shouted, Ah, that settles the Manichees! And he called for his secretary to come and take some notes on how to refute Manichaeism. And we're not to be like that. We're not to get into our own little world and just drag up old heresies from the grave for no particular reason, just to show how clever you are at refuting them. You're not clever if you're not paying attention to the people sitting next to you who may have other heresies swirling around in their lives. And you don't necessarily need to unsettle your congregation with tales of all the grisly and appalling ways in which my sermon text for this week has been mauled by the heretical books that they made you read at college. However, if you know that there is an actual and imminent risk of them falling for a dodgy interpretation of this passage, you must carefully and prayerfully show them the truth. If there is a real and present danger of them falling into some sin, which our culture encourages or the wider church seems to wink at, it is your God-given task to wisely warn them off and show them how to avoid it. You're not properly shepherding the sheep if you don't protect them from the wolves in a way that is gentle, not violent, remember, and self-controlled, not arrogant. So this is the, the profile that Paul gives us. Paul gives to Titus of somebody who is suitable for ministry in the church of Crete. It's a portrait of the kind of person that we desperately need in the church of England today, is it not? Before I finish, though, I want us to particularly notice one very important thing. Titus is not told to look out for gifted people. He is not told to appoint people who have great leadership potential and sparkling oratory. Paul doesn't say, pick some people from the best families and the best universities on Crete and fashion them into instruments for transforming Cretan society. Titus is told to pick people whose character and commitment to the truth mark them out already as ambassadors for the truth which leads to godliness. Because Paul knows that exalting gifts and charisma over character and deep commitment would leave the church open to manipulative mercenaries and narcissists. We've had enough of them. Their shameful defections, their moral compromises, their abuses of power. I don't need to name them. You know who I mean. So we don't exalt gifts over godliness and a grip on the gospel. We don't exalt charisma over character and commitment. Now, I know that 1 Timothy 3 says that an overseer must be able to teach. But that isn't a command to find people with teaching gifts and skills or knowledge and degrees and then appoint them. That's not what he's saying. Ability to teach is about more than didactic pedagogic technique. It's also about having a firm grip on the gospel. That consistency of life and clarity of teaching just flow out of you naturally. Because that's who you are. And that's what you want for people. This is why Martin Bootser says in his Reformation-era book on the true care of souls, that churches have not taken their ministers from the same type of person as far as outward things are concerned, because God has not distributed his gifts in this way. He does not look upon the person. Indeed, in order that it may be seen that all Christians, high and low, 
alike are nonetheless one in Christ. Ministers of the church have been taken from people of high, middle and lower classes, sorry, classes, as each was found to excel in the necessary gifts for the care of souls. The Lord desires to have a group of people involved in the ministry of the church and uses many different sorts of people in it who come from all classes and are of all types. So I don't care how talented someone is, how passionate they are, how entrepreneurial, how attractive and clever and media savvy they might be. It doesn't matter what their educational or family background is. That is not what we are looking for in the next generation of church leaders. The most important but often ignored word in this whole chapter is the first word of verse 6 in the Greek or the ESV anyway. Titus is told to appoint people as elders if and only if he can find people who match this description here. We're not seeking for those who can make an impressive career in the church, the ones to watch. Uh-uh. We're on the lookout for those who are trustworthy and true. Because we're not after sparkling celebrities, but faithful stewards of the gospel and loyal servants of God. Now, I know that that sounds a bit mundane in some ways. But it is harder than you think to be this subversively countercultural in our leadership selection. But this is how we change everything. Everything. So next time you hear someone complaining about the current crisis and about how the condition of the state is ruined when it is governed by people who are stupid, demanding and burning with ambition, remember that the church is struggling too. It is unsettled, unhealthy and unfit in many ways. The church needs better leaders. The church needs godly leaders. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to be the change we want to see in the church. That's the first step to changing the world. So let's pray for God's mercy and the help of his spirit that we might be the kind of men and women described in Titus chapter 1 for the glory of God and the good of England. Let's pray. Let's just spend a moment reflecting on your own response to what we've heard and then I'll close with a collect from Foundations of Faith. Risen and ascended Lord Jesus, you have given pastors and teachers as a gift to your church to equip the saints for works of ministry. Grant to all bishops, presbyters, deacons and others in teaching ministries in our churches faithful diligence so to teach your word and frame their lives that they may banish false opinions and be wholesome examples and patterns to the church for which you died. Amen.